when going through a difficult time, do you find it encouraging for someone to say to you, hang in there, or don't give up, or keep the faith, or don't lose heart? You know, I hope you do, because we all do it. But wouldn't it really be better if someone showed us how to hang in there rather than just encourage us to do so? And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul did in the fourth chapter of 2 Corinthians. He began the chapter by saying, we do not lose heart. And brought the chapter to a close by saying the same thing. It's almost as if we do not lose heart served as bookends to what he had to say. But Paul didn't just tell us not to lose heart. He modeled it by including himself when he said, we do not lose heart. And he explained why he didn't lose heart. He made it clear that the frustration he might have felt trying to share the gospel with those who didn't want it didn't discourage him because he knew that the God of this world had veiled their eyes from the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. He understood that spiritual forces were at work when the gospel was being shared and that freed him from thinking the results were dependent upon his presentation. He didn't have to come up with clever ways to try to sneak the gospel into someone's conscience. Nor should he water down the gospel to make it more palatable. He could just live out the truth as revealed and preach Christ Jesus as Lord. He knew God would take it from there and make sure the light shone into the hearts of those who would receive it. He also explained why he could be afflicted in every way, but not crushed. How he could be perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. The struggles of life and ministry didn't destroy him because he knew he had something inside that couldn't be destroyed. He saw himself as an earthen vessel, a jar of clay that contained the power of God. He also knew that the power of God was best displayed when things happened that made his personal weaknesses evident. Because it then became obvious that something more than Paul himself was at work in his life. And that, he said, resulted in others desiring what inhabited him, which caused the giving of thanks to rebound to the glory of God. As he draws this chapter to a close, he repeats, we do not lose heart. And continues giving us reasons why. We do not lose heart because our inner man is being renewed. Our afflictions are producing glory and our eyes are focused on the eternal. 2 Corinthians 4, 16. Therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, 
yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. Now, I'm going to turn 73 in a couple of weeks. And even though it's younger than either candidate for president, it's still old. And I was reminded of that recently while reading Psalm 90.10. As for the days of our life, they contain 70 years. Or if due to strength, 80 years. Well, I've been going to Fit Club three days a week for nearly 15 years in an attempt to stay strong. But even if strong, 80 is getting closer all the time. And I'm obviously not as strong as I think I am. Just painting the front door for Marilyn's birthday wore me out. I am getting older. And my outer man is decaying. I can tell by just looking at my toenails. Oh. I also know I'm getting older because I keep trying to get Marilyn to agree on a cemetery. I don't want her to pull a Judy Marlowe on me and declare last man standing gets to choose. <laughs> yes, the outer man is decaying. And the decay that we sense is a confirmation of the fact that we are dying. In fact, death is just around the corner for all of us. Paul said our inner man is being renewed day by day. So what is it that renewed Paul? What is it that can renew us? Contrary to what some might think, it's not a nutritional supplement or a vacation or a Harley. It's the resurrection of Jesus. You know, we might be able to live in denial of death and decay for a time by making our body feel as good as possible or by getting away from the increasingly difficult struggles of life for a week or two or by simply riding off into the sunset. But death is always on the horizon. The only way to really find renewal in the face of death is to embrace the fact that death is not the end. The only real assurance we have that it's not is that God said so. And Jesus proved it by rising from the grave. Indeed, it's the resurrection of Jesus that keeps us from losing heart. It's the resurrection of Jesus that gives us hope and renews us day by day. And that hope is sure. For as Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. 
After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as if it were to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Hundreds of witnesses to the resurrection were still alive when Paul wrote to the Corinthians. And Paul himself had seen the risen Lord, so he knew that the promise of life after death was true. Jesus rose from the grave, and Paul knew that he who raised Jesus would raise him as well. He made that clear back in verse 14 when he wrote, He who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also. Paul didn't fear death because he knew he would live again. Life for him was not a slow but inevitable slipping down a slope that leads to death and ends in the grave. Yes, death and the grave and decay would have to be faced. But Paul knew one day his grave would be as empty as had been the tomb of Jesus. Paul knew he would live again. And that renewed his inner man, even as his outer man was decaying. And the fact that he knew a glorious eternal life would follow his death kept Paul from losing heart, even when facing affliction. For as he goes on to say, our affliction is producing glory. For momentary, light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Momentary light affliction doesn't sound so bad. Surely, we could keep from losing heart if our afflictions were only momentary and light. But before we jump to any conclusions about the momentary light afflictions Paul had to face, maybe we ought to take a quick look at them. We'll examine them in depth when we get to the 11th chapter. There, Paul will tell us he was beaten times without number, often to the point of death. Five times he received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times he was beaten with rods, and once he was stoned. Three times he was shipwrecked, spending a night and a day in the deep. On his journeys, he was in danger from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from his countrymen, Dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, and dangers from false brethren. He was in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from such external things, he had the daily pressure of concern for all the churches. I don't know about you, but I doubt that I would call such momentary afflictions light. And apart from such external things, 
he had the daily pressures of concern for churches. All these things to him were light in comparison to the sufferings of Christ and in light of the glory that he knew was coming. He's already told us that as followers of Christ, we are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal life, that in life we face death in all its forms, including the decay of our outer man and temporal afflictions, so the power of Jesus' resurrected life might be seen in us. And Paul was confident that by going through to a small extent what Jesus went through in life, he would also experience something of the glory that Jesus experienced after life. The perfect Son of God, through absolutely no fault of his own, was rejected, humiliated, beaten, nailed to a cross, and left to die. But that suffering of Christ brought to him an eternal weight of glory. Jesus rose victorious over death and is now seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven, reigning as King of kings and Lord of lords. And for 2,000 years, men and women on earth have worshipped him as Savior and Lord of their lives. Indeed, Paul viewed the afflictions he experienced in life as momentary in light in comparison to what his Lord had experienced. And he was confident that someday he would share in the eternal weight of glory his Savior subsequently enjoyed. For as he said in Romans 8.18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Or as J.B. Phillips beautifully put it, and I've quoted many times, in my opinion, whatever we may have to go through now is less than nothing compared with the magnificent future God has planned for us. Paul didn't lose heart in the present because he kept his eyes on a glorious future. And he makes that clear when he says, in effect, our eyes are focused on the eternal. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. You know, it's hard not to look at the things which are seen. They're all around us. They're constantly in our face. And it's not just the bad things that cause us to lose sight of the eternal. Sometimes we simply get too enthralled with the good things of this life. You know, we live in a land of plenty. And contrary to what some would have us believe, even the poor in our country have it pretty good. After comparing the percentages of who has what with what they had in the 70s, 
the economist Walter Williams concluded that if he had to be poor anywhere in the world today, he would certainly choose to be poor here. Now, that's not to suggest there aren't needs in our country, even in our community. But in comparison with the poverty in much of the world, the poorest among us are still pretty rich. So Jesus' warning that it would be easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven applies to all of us. The temporal things of this world do tend to blind us to the things that are eternal. And the things that are seen can indeed keep us from looking at the things that are not seen. And then, in addition to the natural difficulty we have in looking beyond the things which are easy to see, we see the things that must be seen by eyes of faith. To see them, we're surrounded by a naturalistic mindset that philosophically seeks to blind us to spiritual realities. People are telling us what we think out there is not true. But Paul writes in Romans 1.20, For since the creation of the world, his, God's, invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. Paul makes it clear that the things that we see have been created in such a way as to point to that which we cannot see. But the prevailing evolutionary philosophy that insists that everything we see can be explained by natural forces when combined with chance and time makes it extremely hard to see the spiritual realities that undergird all of life. Thankfully, more and more scientists in various disciplines are seeing evidence of design and thus a designer in what can be seen. Books such as Darwin's Black Box, Signs of Intelligence, and Reclaiming Science from Darwinism help us see that which many insist isn't there. Some even go so far as to proclaim as does Hugh Ross in The Fingerprint of God, that the growing evidence of design would seem to provide further convincing support for the belief that the God of the Bible, the God who lives beyond the limits of time and space, personally shaped the universe and earth. If we can see that, we will not lose heart. If we have eyes to see the overwhelming evidence that an eternal God has created for us that which is temporal, we have every reason to believe he is also preparing for us that which is eternal. And it is the promise of the eternal that keeps us from losing heart when the temporal decays and dies, and causes momentary light affliction. Paul learned to keep his eyes focused on the eternal, and so can we. 
We cannot allow the bad things or the good things of this world to blind us to that which is eternal. Nor can we allow unbelieving philosophers and scientists to veil our eyes to that which is so very obvious. I am resolved to keep my eyes on the things that are not seen. And I pray you are too. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. Thank you for all you've given to us. Thank you for this world that was designed with us in mind. Thank you for the evidences we can see all around us of a God who loves us, who's provided for us and will always provide for us. Father, don't let those negative voices take over our life. Don't don't let us buy into the pessimism that things are falling apart and out of control. You are a God who is in control. And you've promised to bring your will to completion one day when Jesus returns. When we feel overwhelmed, Father, by struggles and issues and debates and hatred and murder and all the stuff we deal with, Help us not to realize that you are in control. And in spite of the choices that are made, your will will ultimately be done. Thank you, Father, for enabling us to have eyes of faith and live in that faith. Thank you for Jesus and for the guarantee of life eternal and resurrection from the dead. In his name we pray.